0: Hi, it's Michael Sinoff with Michael Sinoff's HardToFindSeminars.com. The title of this interview is called How to Eat Your Way to Good Health. It's an interview with world-renowned physician T. Colin Campbell. T. Colin Campbell's book, The China Study has been described as one of the most important books on nutrition ever. It is said that reading it could save your life. So in this interview, you'll meet Mr. Campbell and hear exactly what makes his study so important. While trying to solve the problem of malnutrition in the Philippines, Dr. Campbell noticed that families who were eating the most protein were also suffering the most with diseases like cancer. This simple observation led to a 20-year study on the effects that diet has on disease particularly cancer, heart disease, and diabetes. And the results were not only astounding, they were against Dr. Campbell's own personal beliefs. But the good news is, you can eat your way to being disease-free. And in this interview, you'll hear how to do it. You'll also hear examples of what you should be eating to repress heart disease and delay aging. You'll learn clear and straightforward advice that will help you create your own optimum diet today. You'll learn the single most harmful chemical that most of us consume every day that Turn the cancer on in laboratory animals. You'll learn the real reason why most doctors fail when it comes to preventing disease and how to take over and stay healthy. You'll learn the one-size-fits-all recommendation that can restore health for everyone. Dr. Campbell says that most people think about nutrition on a casual level. They know they should be eating more fruits and vegetables but don't actually plan on doing it. This interview is an important first step to taking control of your life and having the healthy future you deserve. Now let's get going.
1: Hi, this is Chris Costello, and I've teamed up with Michael Senoff to bring you the world's best wellness-related interviews. So if you know anyone struggling with their weight, with cancer, diabetes, ADHD, autism, heart disease, or other health challenges, please send them to Michael michaelsenoffshardtofindseminars.com. Today, we'll be talking with T. Colin Campbell, author of the best-selling book, The China Study, Startling Implications for Diet, Weight Loss, and Long-Term Health. The China Study was written by T. Colin Campbell and his son, Thomas M. Campbell II, and has been called the most comprehensive study of nutrition ever conducted. Dr. Dean Ornish says everyone in the field of nutrition science stands on the shoulders of Dr. Campbell, who is one of the giants in the field. This is one of the most important books about nutrition ever written. Reading it may save your life. John Robbins says T. Colin Campbell is recognized as a brilliant scholar, an educated researcher, and a great humanitarian. If you truly want to take charge of your health, read the China study and do it soon. So, Dr. Campbell, you discovered some amazing things in your research, which you describe in the China study. Can you tell our listeners, you know, what that process was, kind of the step-by-step, what you found out?
2: I mean, as I said in my doctoral dissertation at Cornell University, I was doing research with my professors on the idea of trying to figure out, you know, more effective ways and productive ways of producing more animal-based protein. Then, a little later, while being at Virginia Tech for 10 years, actually, I got involved in an international program in the Philippines where our charge was to tackle the problem of malnutrition in children. And we generally assumed in those days, and still to some extent these days, children are malnourished, at least nutritionally speaking, because they don't get enough calories or they don't get enough protein. And the protein thing here, obviously, was something we were very interested in. It also was consistent with my training because in my Doctor's dissertation, as I said, you know, we were trying to figure out ways to promote the greater consumption of protein, especially animal-based protein, so we were tackling the problem in part that way in the Philippines. But what I noticed when I was there, sort of happenstance, was that although the vast majority of the Filipinos did not consume as much protein as we did in the West, and, of course, you know, we thought that we had a better deal here than they did there, whereas the majority of people did not consume enough protein, there were a few who did few families who were getting protein more or less at other levels. But then it also turned out that these are the families who had children, for example, who were more likely to experience liver cancer, primary liver cancer, which is virtually unheard of as far as young people are concerned. It was anecdotal. It wasn't documented. It wasn't any of that kind of thing. It was just something that my surgeon friends told me about when I was working with them. And so it was a bit at odds with what you're trying to do because these families consuming more protein, having children have a greater likelihood of getting more cancer. I mean, it really sounded crazy. But then there was a study that came from India with experimental animals that showed, in fact, that when they were studying the formation of liver cancer in these rats and they fed the higher levels of protein, these animals' their liver cancers grew faster. And so all of a sudden, experimental animal studies were supporting what I was saying to children. So it was on the basis of those two observations that then I came home, essentially, and organized a study with NASA Institutes of Health Funding, NIH Funding, for the next 27 years, working on this question concerning the effect of protein consumption on the development of experimental cancer.
1: 27 years. That's a good chunk of time. Yes, it was. I had
2: lots of students. We had a large number of publications published, I should say, in the very best scientific journals on these studies, and so I really got totally immersed in the whole question concerning the effect of protein on cancer development. Eventually, it expanded into the effect of other nutrients as well on experimental tumor development, too. But in any case, we focused on the question of protein and its ability to modify, if you will, liver cancer development these rest. Now, it turns out that's a fairly narrowly focused kind of investigation, but it serves the purpose of understanding how cancer works and it also provided some remarkable findings that I never expected to see involving the interrelationship between nutrition and cancer. There was no one actually at that time, to my knowledge, in fact, I know there wasn't, who mm-hmm. was really working in any serious way on this question. There were a couple of others who were sort of doing a few studies in a more general way of nutrition and, let's say, experimental cancer development, but none of them anywhere near the detail that we were doing. In any case, we really tried to understand you know, what was going on at the biochemical level but in a sense I sometimes said like it's almost as if I was crawling inside of the cell to see what was going on. First off, we wanted to know whether or not, you know, higher protein intake actually did turn on cancer, you know, as the Indian workers had reported and as I was seeing in children. So we did those kind of studies. Sure enough, it did. There was no question about that, and it was very prominent. The second part of the question that we wanted to address was, if this is so, and it's a very provocative idea, you know, how does it work? So we were looking for the so-called explanatory mechanisms. It's the biochemical mechanisms by which it worked. In any case, to make a long story short, we did this study in many different ways. We repeated it many times over. We got to a point where we could basically turn on and turn off experimental cancer development in these animals by fairly modest changes in dietary protein intake. And, of course, the higher the protein intake, the higher the cancer growth rate. And also equally remarkable, I think, was the fact that the level of increase, the amount of increased protein intake required to do this was not that much. And there were levels consistent with the kind of levels of protein that we humans tend to consume. In other words, going from, to be specific, to go from, let's say, a protein level of 10% of total calories, which is enough, by the way, both for rats and for humans, going from 10% up to 20%, which is not a big increase, one would think. But we saw sharp increases in cancer development in that case. If we would drop it, we'd sort of feed 20% for a while, watch the cancer develop, switch the animals over to 5% or 10%, we'd turn it off. And the most remarkable thing of all was the fact that the protein that we were using to turn on cancer was casing, the main protein of cow's milk, and having been raised on a dairy farm, And believing, if I knew anything about nutrition in those days, and I didn't know much, but if I knew anything at all, it was the fact that consuming milk was always considered to be a good source of protein. So Mm -hmm. here it is. We're finding that the main protein in cow's milk is turning on this experimental cancer development. Admittedly, it was in experimental animal soap. Also, admittedly, it was for one kind of cancer model, as we say in research. So, you know, you can't get too excited about this in terms of generalizing too far. But I spent much of the latter half of my career just addressing that question. Is this applicable to humans? And there's many different ways to consider that question. And my answer is yes, very much so. So it raises a question about the way we think about protein in particular, protein nutrition, to say nothing of the way we actually think about food. You know, historically, we've had a tremendous, I sometimes say, reverence for protein as a nutrient. Many people have often thought through the ages that of all the nutrients they've heard about or know anything about or whether they even think about it very much. Everybody wants to make sure they get enough protein. And so that has driven much of our thinking about nutrition in general, to say nothing of our thinking about protein. Because most people have assumed for a long, long time that you get your protein by consuming meat and milk and eggs. And, of course, although those foods are rich in protein, there's no question about that. And they're especially rich in a kind of protein that is, as we say biologically speaking, is more efficient, has higher quality It turns out that we can get all the protein we really need. In fact, we get optimum levels of protein by consuming plant-based foods. We start putting in animal protein, I mean, start putting in animal food in order to get that protein that we've always for so long revered. As soon as we start doing that, then we tend to decrease our consumption of plant-based foods. And in the process, we elevate our total intake of protein within the range that's consistent with what you see in the experimental animal studies. So this story just Mm. became deeper and more expansive with the passing of time. We did this study in many different ways. And let me come back just to point out one more thing. We were finding that casein, the main protein of cow's milk could do this. When we replaced that, as we did in a couple of experiments, when we replaced it with soy protein or wheat protein, both plant-based proteins, they did not do this. They did not elevate cancer growth rate like casein did. Then there came to my attention a lot of studies that had been done, perhaps in some cases many, many years ago, where casein had been used in experimental animal studies to study other kinds of events, not just cancer studying events like, you know, the effect on blood cholesterol levels, for example, or the effects on what we call angiogenesis, the origin of heart disease, or the effects on, let's say, something like hormonal distribution, which in turn relates to various subject health outcomes, or the effects on acidification and creating a little bit of acidity in the body, which has consequences. As I started looking at this literature, and, of course, doing some of this ourselves, It turned out this protein effect is widespread. It not only has effect an increase in cancer growth rates, it has an ability to increase blood cholesterol levels as well and also to increase the early formation of what can lead to coronary artery disease and what can lead to the formation of osteoporosis. And so the story has become very, very large, expansive. It's become very deep. And obviously, as I was going through my career seeing these things, which were so at odds with what I had been taught, so at odds with what I personally, you know, had done in my early life, that obviously we started to change. And eventually I got to a point, as I mentioned earlier, that it was time to sit down and write a book. I had actually gotten to a point where I had to struggle with this information because it was not the kind of information I intended to get in the first place. There was. We had to acknowledge it and test it in various ways. I have to say, I loved the farm. I mean, farm life for me was the best of my life, essentially. I had no problems with that. But, you know, to come along with information like this, by the time we got around to writing the book, and I did it, incidentally, with our youngest son, who had been a graduate in theater from Cornell University. He was an actor in Chicago at the time. So he got involved with me, too, to write the book, to make sure my technical language, you know, was in a readable form. Did a fantastic job. We worked together. He's actually now in med school. He wants to go back to medicine to this medicine, you know, with a different cast to it, if you will. When I sat down to write the book, you know, I was almost writing as much for myself
0: to mm-hmm. try to understand
2: what it was that I thought I had come to believe and to gather the evidence, the findings, the stuff that we had produced to see if I could write it down in a form in which I believed it, you know, could tell a story. So that's what the China Study is really about, is my recounting, in many ways, of the kind of research findings that I found compelling, you know, to finally end up with the story. And one element of all of that, incidentally, that was not entirely clear to me as I was doing the book, I should say, was whether or not this all translates into human nutrition. You know, to what extent does this really apply to human nutrition? One way we did that, by the way, we did the China study. That's where the name comes from. We did this. It's the most expansive comprehensive study ever done, I guess, in the history of medicine. And so we did that study. Those results were consistent. Rather remarkably so, consistent with what we were finding in the laboratory. So, you know, I was putting it all together in the book and trying to, as you I know, say, end up with a story. But then in the process, I was really interested in, too, you know, what about some of my colleagues in medicine? Were there any people around who were maybe doing this kind of thing? And sure enough, there were a few, handful, and they made contact with me, two in particular. Dr. John McDougall in Northern California, a longtime physician who has been doing this kind of thing in his practice and getting really marvelous results. Dr. Mendugo is really quite an entrepreneur, creative, and sincere you know, physician who's been doing this kind of thing. And so he contacted me. we struck a relationship. we friends now. And he continues to do this. And then there was Dr. Caldwell Essendon, a famous surgeon at the Cleveland Clinic, who at the time was reversing heart disease, of all things. And then there was Dean Ornish, Dr. Dean Ornish at Cecilito in California, you know, here were three individuals who I was making acquaintance with and hearing their stories and seeing the remarkable results that they were each getting. And then it gradually grew and grew and grew. I'm familiar with a, quite a large number of physicians who are trying this, getting really remarkable results. And I just see the seeds being planted, in a sense, of changing the medical profession, led by these pioneers of McDougall and Esselstyn and Dr. Hans Deal as well. It seems like California has their share of interesting and forward-thinking people. But Hans oh, Neal, nice. associate with Loma Linda University there in California, and has actually devised over the years with his colleagues a really good community-based program. I refer to it as that. He's able to go into communities and organize, and he has done this extensively. I think he's got mm-hmm. something like 50,000 graduates now around from around the United States. But he's done this really well. Gets a group mm-hmm. of people to work through a series of lectures. And they start out measuring something at baseline and measure things in the, the program. They see the results. It's kind of an experiential kind of thing. It's a nice program. So he's doing that. I mean, I could go on and on and on and name quite a number of physician health care providers who have really done quite remarkable things. So that was the sort of the, in many ways, the linchpin that kind of was big to tie up the things for me because I was getting my impressions from the science. And they, in fact, I'm discovering. I'm not a physician, of course. What they were doing was doing it with real people. And so when you put these two stories together, wow, this is incredible. And so then you start raising the question, well, how come we haven't known this before?
1: For more interviews on health, mind, body, and spirit, go to Michael michaelsenoffshardtofindseminars.com. You spent a lot of years in the field of nutrition research.
2: I spent about 20 years involved in national and international food and policy development, being on expert panels and so forth. Sort of having that combination of doing the original research with my many students and other colleagues and also being involved in sort of in a sense translating this information for public consumption. Gave me a sort of view that I ended up with that was dramatically different from what I had started with. And so I decided it was time to write a book.
1: Okay. And what was the view that you started with about nutrition?
2: Well, it was a view that's fairly traditional still is traditional in many quarters, but it was a view that the good old American diet was about as good as it could get. It was a diet that was high in protein, plenty of fat, in other words, energy rich, rich in animal-based foods too. I mean, that was my own personal diet. That was my own training and my professional life. And it also was a view that tended to focus on the idea that a nutritional effect could be accounted for by understanding the effects of individual nutrients, sort of the independent effects of individual nutrients. That view is in stark contrast to what I believe now. I mean, our research over the years obviously led me to the idea that based on all the evidence that we gathered over the years, that consuming a high-protein diet, especially a diet high in animal protein, a diet high in fat, and low in dietary fiber, which only comes from plants, that that kind of diet is not good. It really accounts for a very large proportion of the illnesses and deaths that we incur in this country. And so my view today is basically one that's focused on consuming plant-based foods, plant-based whole foods, I should say, vegetables, fruits, grains, legumes, as much as possible in an intact form. Those kinds of foods really do have the nutritional qualities that do some really amazing things. They not only prevent future disease problems, but they're also known now to be able to even reverse some serious diseases in fairly advanced stages. So we're really talking about, I think, treatment as well as prevention of illnesses.
1: So you're saying basically that people's food intake, their diet can have a big influence on their health. Absolutely. I know a lot of people will go to their medical doctors and I've heard people say that they will be told, you know, oh, that doesn't have anything to do with health. How do you explain that?
2: Well, I explain it first and foremost by the fact that virtually no doctors have any training in nutrition. The subject is really not taught in medical schools. It's tragic, but doctors really have no training. Yet the public and the patient reveres the doctor for all kinds of medical knowledge, and they certainly do have a lot of medical knowledge. They can do a lot of wonderful things, but in reality, they have no training in the area of nutrition. Also, at the same time, in my own field, we've been behind the eight ball as well because we tend to focus on the biological effects of individual nutrients, and that's the way we study these questions, when in fact that's not really the way nutrition works. So in reality, our understanding of nutrition, in my mind, is misguided and misleading and very confusing for the public. So just to finish up what I was going to say before, my views today are not based on the independent effects of individual nutrients, even though we study them that way. I think of it as the concerted effects of really virtually countless chemicals in food, many of which we could call nutrients. It's the concerted sort of highly integrated effect of these chemicals, if you will. A couple of other kinds of things, too. I mean, exercise, sunlight, water, and so forth. But it's the integrated effects of all these things working together that I find just to be absolutely an awesome display of nature. And so my view is much more akin to what nature has provided us and trying to understand what nutrition can do from that perspective. And when we do it that way, it sounds fairly straightforward, I guess, but in reality, we don't think of it that way. But when we do think of it that way, as I said before, the effects that are produced are really dramatic.
1: Dramatic in what ways?
2: We tend to think of it at least, insofar as those who believe, you know, the diet has some good properties. We tend to think that, you know, if you eat the right foods, you can prevent, for example, heart disease, cancers, and so forth. That idea has been around quite a long time, although we think of it fairly superficially because in reality, even though we sort of know that consuming vegetables and fruits may prevent certain kinds of cancers that may prevent heart disease, you know, we treat that kind of information rather casually and superficially, it seems to me. I mean, a lot of us say it, we've heard it many times, and it's certainly true. But as I mentioned before, what I'm now seeing is that it really has a dramatic effect on preventing virtually all those diseases. And even still far more. And it also promotes health in the sense that it promotes better physical being, mental sharpness, I guess you could say. But even more significant than that, in many ways, is the fact that this same diet has been shown, for example, to cure heart disease in fairly advanced stages. And it can cure type 2 diabetes, which is rampant in the country today. It can have a lot to do with reducing obesity that tends to be a forerunner of some of these kinds of diseases. And it also has properties of being able to basically control at least stop the progression of some of the serious autoimmune diseases and even in many cases reverse those diseases. So we're really talking about something that it leads to an idea that has been consistently rejected in the medical community from their perspective for good reason, but it basically does something like to say it's one size fits all if you will. And I know if there's any physicians listening to me saying that, they're going to think I'm a bit nuts. We don't know of any medicines, for example, that can be used to have multiple effects like diet can. So to say that one size fits all, I don't mean that exactly or precisely, but basically this kind of diet basically prevents and or can treat a wide variety of illnesses and can restore health. And it does it for virtually everyone, maybe more so for some than others. And so we are different in that sense. The extent to which we respond to this effect. But what the remarkable idea is that this effect basically restores health to some degree for virtually everyone.
1: What is the best diet? What should people be eating if they do have health problems? Well, plant
2: based and also intact foods. Things like, you know, vegetables, grains, fruits, legumes, and so forth. And as I say, I'm talking about whole foods, intact foods. What I mean by that is that I'm not talking about the kind of diet where you take something out of plants. Like sugar or white flour or allegedly the good oil of plants, so the so-called polyunsaturated oils. I mean, if you take those things out of plants and then turn around and put them back into a dish and mix them all up and make it into a recipe, you can end up with a donut or a danish. And that's not what I'm talking about. That's a processed food. It may be plant-based, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about whole foods. Then we consider this question about what really is whole foods. I'm talking about you know good fresh whole foods. And of all the plants that seem to be the most remarkable is the ones that are colored, the leafy vegetables especially, the green, yellow, reds, if you will. The color that's imparted to the plant is actually attributed to chemicals in the plant whose chemical structures are such that they tend to be antioxidant in nature. And so foods that tend to act as antioxidants, we now know from a lot of scientific evidence that that tends to repress the development of cancer and perhaps even reverse cancer. It tends to repress the formation of heart disease. And, of course, it's also discussed a lot in regards to it tends to retard aging. So antioxidants are good, and antioxidants come in large measure from the colored vegetables and fruits. So the leafy vegetables, if you will, are especially good in that regard. And they should be whole, because when I say whole or intact, in a sense, I'm not saying, you know, you have to eat the food just as it is. I mean, you can obviously dice it and cut it up and cook it to some extent and things like that. I'm just talking about, you know, using the whole plant, however it ends up being used. The reason for that in large measure is the fact that, in that case, you're sort of maintaining the integrity of all the chemicals in that food as they are consumed, you know, simultaneously. There's something about this that when we're consuming the food that contains all of this stuff, you know, at the same time as we do in whole food, that's when you get the best effects. So it's important to look at it that way.
1: I just know there's large numbers of people that are not eating that way, and how do you get them to change?
2: Well, first off, the recommendations that have been made over the years about consuming X number of servings of vegetables and fruits if you will, I've never really very much liked that kind of recommendation. First off, the recommendation is kind of superficial, and we're not recommending that many servings in any case, you know, five servings of fruits and vegetables a day or nine servings, whatever. That puts numbers on things. It quantitates, you know, what we're supposed to be doing, and people don't think that way very well, first off. My recommendation, just in that regard, is to say, you know, make up as much of the diet as possible in the form of plant-based foods, number one and keep a good variety and consume the foods in the intact form, as I said before. But here's an important point. For someone who might be interested in doing this, when they try it initially and for a while, they're not necessarily going to become that comfortable with it because the taste that we have by consuming, as I say, the good old American diet, the high-protein, high-fat diet, we've become accustomed to those tastes over the years. And so, in fact, in some cases, we've become addicted to those tastes. And so by switching over to the kind of diet I'm talking about initially, maybe the first three days or so, it's not going to be that exciting necessarily. That's just the way we behave. But what we do know from scientific evidence is that our taste preferences change. They really change. And so to give a couple of specific examples, if we're accustomed to consuming a high-salt diet and we switch to a low-salt diet, we crave the salt taste. And so we find it a little difficult for a while. It takes about a month or so to sort of de-adapt the preference for high salt. In the case of fat, another example, we're accustomed to consuming high-fat diets, and high-fat diets do really impart a lot of flavor. It carries certain substances that we like. It gives a certain feel to the food if we like. It also is an addictive kind of response. It actually changes our brain chemistry by consuming high-fat intake. And so if we go to a low-fat diet suddenly, which I'm advocating obviously, People will say things like, oh, it doesn't have a taste. I don't really like this. This is rabbit food or such. But quite frankly, it turns out that with fat, it may take a few months to sort of de-adapt and to become accustomed to low-fat taste. And by the time you get to the low-fat low, salt, low fat, and also get your taste buds changed, then you look back and you can't figure out you know, why in the world you ever ate that other stuff in the first place. But this is what people don't do. They don't seem to understand that with low-patients, they can get rid of those old taste preferences. All of a sudden, discover some new tastes, and also discover that the variety of food that one can have by going here is much, much greater than what they've been accustomed. To. I mean, the oh. variety of plant-based food dishes is basically infinite.
1: That's the end of our interview, and I hope you've enjoyed it. For more great health-related interviews, go to Michael Senoffs Hard to Find